The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. One of the most horrific things a rancher might imagine is a fire breaking out in their livestock barn. Now, if the barn is full of animals, the, the terror of them perishing in the flames is overwhelming. In movie scenes, when a barn catches fire, when that's being used in the story, or if you read a novel and you have a barn fire, I'm thinking uh, particular, particularly when there's horses involved, to rescue those animals out of that, that blaze, a lot of times the, the horse's eyes get covered, and whoever's doing the rescuing draws them out of where they would otherwise die. And, and this type of rescue requires courage. It requires action, and it requires a willing and submissive horse. If any element is missing, then the rescue ends in destruction. The result is destruction, destruction of life, destruction of property, destruction of the ability to carry on one's livelihood, as one did before, and even the destruction of one's reputation. I mean, just consider what you would have the next day if you were this rancher, and throughout the night, your, your barn burned to the ground. If you experienced such a fire, what you have left are any livestock that you may have saved. Praise God for, for those animals. You have a, the charred remains of your once prized barn. You have the acrid smell of all that burned, including animals that you weren't able to rescue. You have the overwhelming feeling of what now? What now? The barn has burned. And maybe even you get the added benefit of scorn from the passerbyers that give you these helpful comments of, well, maybe you left the heat lamp too close to the, to the chicks and that, that caused the fire. Or you didn't check the, the moisture content of your hay frequently enough and maybe that caused the fire. Or something, whatever the, the plausible reason might be that your barn has caught fire. And even in this, this brief description, this illustration of, a, of the horrors of a barn fire, I hope you begin to see some of the similarities between the barn fire and the passage that we're going to be working through that was just read. We will have to go through this verse by verse, this passage that's before us, Genesis 34. And at the end of the passage, Dinah has still been defiled. No possibility of her being made whole and her culture was really available to her at the end of the chapter. The reputation of Jacob was in jeopardy. The wrongdoers and all their people were slain. The wrong committed in the name of retribution made nothing right. So whatever remains at the end of Genesis 34 is clearly damaged. And the path of destruction is identifiable by all the littered remnants of what, what was once there. Just littered remnants. And even though we see this destruction, 
begetting more destruction in Genesis 34, that doesn't veil the truth. That doesn't veil the truth of what is needed. And what is needed is someone to be courageous in the face of danger, administering justice at the appropriate time. And I give you no pretense as we walk through these verses that this will be cheery. But this is the text we have. This is the text that is before us. And the word of God, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved throughout the ages, never returns void. We're going to take this chapter in four parts. They're not equal parts by any means. But first, the impulsiveness destroys purity. Then we're going to look at immoral action destroys proper practices. And then immaturity destroys peace. And finally, a brief section on the inaction destroys protections. So beginning with impulsiveness destroys purity. Impulsiveness destroys purity. Verses 1 through 5. Two things to look at in our opening section, and they both have to do with the home life. One Past patterns of a family can be detected. You know, past patterns of a family can be detected. And then the passive parenting is the number two. Passive parenting reaps no rewards. So look again at verse one of our chapter. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. We're immediately reminded in this very first verse that Jacob not only has a bunch of sons, but he has this daughter. He has this daughter, Dinah. We're made aware of that back in Genesis 30, verse 21. And we're supposed to remember that Jacob has a daughter by his wife, Leah. Okay? By Leah. And it's through the wife, Leah, that he didn't want. He didn't want Leah to be his wife. If you remember... He was tricked on the night of his wedding that he thought he was going to get married to Rachel. His father-in-law puts Leah in the tent instead. And the scriptures let us know that he wasn't too pleased with this. Because afterwards, he does get Rachel, but the Bible records that the Lord saw that he hated Leah. And this is where we get this first aspect of a past pattern. The home Jacob grew up in exhibited lots of partiality. Rebecca loved Jacob, and Isaac loved Esau. That was what he grew up in. That's what he was aware of. And this past pattern of the home life is before us. And Jacob does similarly. He shows favoritism in his own home towards Rachel and towards her offspring over those of Leah and those of the maidservants. It should also be a warning to us that We've all grown up in homes. We've all have these backgrounds and these patterns that can come out as we're raising up our children. And so we just have to be careful that we're not conforming to those things that would actually cause damage or harm in our generation and in our own homes. Not that we want to undo everything that we were taught, but we want to take what is good. And that's what every parent would hope to do. And that's what our kids, as you grow up, would want to do. Take what you're passed along from your parents and make it better. That's what we would want. Not to conform ourselves to the home we grew up in, per se, 
but to conform ourselves to the Word of God and the instructions that we find there. For here, we have Dinah. She's going out. She's going out into the land, into the land of the Canaanites. And here, it's the Hivites in particular. And she's going out. Normally, we would find her with a chaperone of some sort, a a guardian, if you will. But that's not present in the text. She's going out on her own. Her brothers are out in the field. It seems like uh, dad and mom are back home, and she's out there. She's going out unprotected. And this gives us that other picture, this aspect of a potentially passive parenting. Potentially. I mean, why was she freely going about with the women of the land? As we'll see, as we study further in the the Word of God, this wasn't something that the people of God were supposed to do. They weren't supposed to intermingle with the people of the Canaanites. In fact, when they come back out of exile, it's strictly prohibited. But here, it's just part of the the day, as it's recorded in the Scripture. And this, this sets up a bad situation. This sets up a very bad situation that ultimately allows Dinah to become sexually assaulted. She's raped by Shechem. And this is what happens in the next verse, in verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her. And he lay with her and humiliated her. As we read this brutal account of what happened to this woman, this young lady, I want to emphasize, though the issues were present in Jacob's home that I I was just talking about, in in his family, that doesn't give Shechem the right to do this, to do evil thing, an evil thing such as this. He sinned against Dinah. It was Shechem that sinned against this young woman. And he did so in a most heinous way. And for anyone who experiences sexual assault of any kind, one of the most difficult challenges is the blame that that victim takes upon themselves. They blame themselves for being attacked in that way, for the assault. I just want to make sure this is very clearly stated. It is never permissible to force, have someone be forced upon you, for you to force yourself upon another or for someone to force themselves upon you. That is always an evil act. It is never okay. And this is what, if this is what has happened, if you know of someone that this has happened to, then it's, it's wrong. We are each made in the image of God, and we're supposed to treat each other with dignity and respect. But in a sinful and fallen world, heinous crimes like this do happen. Dinah was sinned against by Shechem. Dinah was sinned against. It's important for us to keep that in mind as we continue through the story that this is how this chapter starts with a sin being done against her. Picking up in verse 3, talking of Shechem, after he had done this thing, after he had humiliated Dinah, says, and his soul was drawn to Dinah the daughter of Jacob. He, he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. 
So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. What we are beginning to learn from this study of this passage is that Shechem also must have had a past pattern in his home. He is described as the prince of the land. He is used to getting things that he wants. He's used to a life that is more privileged maybe than some. And so he says to his dad, get this girl for me. Like a possession, just get her. I, I, I like her, I want her, get her for me. He makes a demand of his father. And when he comes before Jacob and Dinah's brothers, he expresses no remorse. I can only speculate that this is what he's accustomed to. His dad may have lived life this way as well. Could have been what he saw. And like father, like son, he is walking a similar path. And the dad, so we're introduced to the dad. Hamor doesn't step in. He receives this demand from his son. He doesn't step in to seek justice, to, to bring justice to bear, but rather he, he goes along passively with his youthful son's desire. The impulsiveness of Shechem destroys the purity of Dinah. The impulsiveness of Shechem destroys the purity of this young lady. He defiles her and demands more, and he demands the backing of his father with all of his father's clout in that region. What will Jacob do? They're going to go speak to Jacob. Jacob, remember, wrestled with God. Jacob, who had striven with man and with God and prevailed who faced his fears and returned to the land of his kindred, what will Jacob do? In verse 5, we find out how Jacob responds. Now Jacob heard that he, that is Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons, they were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. He heard about what had happened to his daughter. Fathers, Jacob heard about what had happened to his daughter. Bible scholars put her age around 16. And what does he do? He held his peace. He remained silent. It even appears later on in the chapter that he allowed Dinah to stay in the house of Shechem until his sons, the brothers of Dinah, went in and, and rescued her through the slaughter. So again, passive parenting reaps no rewards. And I'm not suggesting that he should have taken up the sword himself. I'm not suggesting that. But he should have collected his daughter he should have collected her. He should have brought her back under his home and cared for her. He should have protected her and assured her that he would, he would have done all that he could in his power to bring about justice. Even without a full understanding of, of salvation through Christ, he had a reliance upon God and he could have appealed. As a family, they could have appealed to God's favor upon them 
as they walked through this tragedy. Also, I I believe he should have called out the injustice. He should have called it out and brought it before the elders of the land at the gate of the city, just as we're going to see later Shechem and and Hamor do that. They, They bring before the gate of the city what they're wanting to do. That would have been available as well to Jacob. We're reminded by Paul in Romans 12, 9, that we are to abhor evil and hold fast to what is good. So, this is what I believe we would do here in the middle of our church. Should something as horrific as this take place in our church family, we live in a sinful and fallen world. Something like this were to take place, I I believe Seth and I would provide the pastoral care that would be needed in such a shattering situation. Administering the gospel, providing protection, care, and love for the family as they go through such a thing. But we'd also avail ourselves of the full legal system available to bring justice to bear against the perpetrator of the attack. We would go through with a mandatory reporting We would want to see justice done through the legal system that is available to us here. And they would work together in the devastation that's created there. Not that there would be perfect justice in a justice system, but that it would be used in that manner. Always pointing ourselves to the ultimate justice brought about through the blood of Christ for the redemption of sins. But in our passage, Jacob He holds his peace. He remains silent. By taking this passive approach to a sinful deed, it doesn't cause it to go away. It it allows for others to take the initiative. In this case, that means the impulsiveness of others. The impulsiveness of others overpowers the man who strove all night and wrestled with God. The impulsiveness of others overpowers him. Once a passive leader gives way to the impulsive lustfulness of a youth, it's almost inevitable that the downward spiral is going to continue. And it does here now as we look at our next point, where immoral action destroys proper protections. In verses 6 through 12, immoral action destroys proper protections, or excuse me, proper practices. So as despicable as the defiling of Dinah was, I also want you to consider the time and the culture, the space that these Near Eastern ancient peoples were living in, okay? We have to remember that, not in order to condone any kind of immorality, so don't hear that there's any condoning of immorality, but helping us recognize the additional cultural impacts that this would have had on Dinah for the rest of her life. You see, she's now been defiled. She's no longer a virgin, She has been defiled outside of marriage. And though the law has not been given yet, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, this is dealt with in the law as as given to Moses, that if such a situation were to arise, the man would have to pay the bride price and he would never be allowed to divorce the woman. So they would basically be married. You know, the immoral act would lead to a marriage. There'd be a, a hefty bride price bride price paid 
and the option to divorce would be removed. Okay, so that, would, that comes later. That's not here yet. But we should remember that the purity of sexual relationship between a man and a woman, as designed by God, was understood. It was understood. We've seen it already as we've been working through Genesis. When Sarah was taken out of Abraham's house, Abram's house, and then it was found out that she was married, it was quickly, you know, reversed. Like, we can't do this thing. This, is, this would be wrong. There was a high uh, understanding and ethic of marriage. Similarly with Abimelech, something similar happened where once it was found out, well, we can't do this. This, is, this would be wrong in our land. What wrong would you have done to us by allowing this to occur? So there was a respect for another man's wife, and that would extend to proper practices in the giving and taking of marriage of their daughters with other daughters. When the law is given through Moses by God's provision and written for situations like this, as best as possibly can be written into law, this is where it seems foreign to us. So like I just mentioned, if a man had raped or lain with a virgin in the law, he would likely never want to do that actually because he would know the law existed so there would be this high barrier. This lustful youth would have to think, if I follow through, then that's my wife for life. If I follow through with this act in my mind, then I also pay a hefty bride price. And that was the law of the Israelites. It would have been a, de- um, a detractor, if you will. It would have been a, a barrier to this kind of thing even happening. Not just a, a retribution, but also a help and a barrier from something like this happening. Because remember, now her ability to be taken in marriage is severely hampered because she's no longer a virgin. When the law was given, because people were sinful just as we are today, the man would have had to go through with a great deal of payment, hefty price. This would have effectively put fear into him, saying, I I can't do that. If I'm burning with lust, I need to remove myself and not get even anywhere close to where I might follow through with such a heinous act. To remove the impulsiveness. Clearly here, we don't know what the laws of the land were at the time of this crime. But what we do know is that the immoral actions that took place destroyed proper practices. Destroyed proper practices. In verse 6, we read, And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak to him. The wrong has been done. Now Hamor is going to now try to get this girl That's what his son wants, to be the wife of his son. And the negotiations for a bride has been set off in a completely wrong manner. Look at verse 7 as we continue in the the text. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. 
So do you see this collision that's about to take place? Hamor is on his way to talk to Jacob. Jacob's sons are coming back from the field. Jacob had held his peace. Hamor didn't seek to make the situation right in a just manner. And now the two fathers, they're going to talk about what they clearly know is a horrific event. And the sons of Jacob are coming back and they're angry. They're indignant. They're coming back from the field and they seem to understand perfectly well how heinous the crime was that was committed against Jacob's daughter. They're angry. And now they're going to become intimately entwined, intertwined into this discussion. In fact, we don't even get a response from Jacob. It's now the sons of Jacob that respond for, to the proposal. The brothers of Dinah take over the speaking role. Hamor jumps right in with the proposal. No confession of wrong, no remorse, no regret is being expressed. Instead, he seizes this as an opportunity to link the clans together through marriage. The immoral action of his son completely destroyed the proper practices. And they just skip over that. In verses 8 through 10, his proposal, Hamor spoke with him saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get, prop and, and get property in it. Hamor's son is there with him, and he follows suit. No confession, no regret, no remorse is expressed. He just throws in the incentive of material goods to seal the marriage deal. In verses 11 and 12, we hear what he has to say. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. That's how he ends it. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. This is his focus. If I were hearing this young man talk this way about my sister or about one of my daughters, I don't think I would have received the request favorably at all. In the least bit. A major sin occurred. A major sin. Something that ought not to be done in Israel or the rest of the land for that matter. Immoral action destroys proper practices. And this meeting is not primed for success. The whole reason they're gathered is not even being addressed, but is being overlaid, just overlaid with proposals to bring the peoples together. This, combined with the angry brothers and the angry youth present, it yields a predictable outcome. And that is our next point. Immaturity destroys peace. Now we see that it was Shechem who was last speaking. He was the last one speaking. And now it is the sons of Jacob who respond. 
They want nothing to do with this man. They are the same brothers, mind you, who conspired to kill their brother Joseph later on. And if this matter wasn't directly before their fathers, if, if Hamor and Jacob weren't there, they might have been just willing to do, do in Shechem right then and there. But instead they respond in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor. How did they answer? Deceitfully. Because he had defiled their sister Dinah. So right off the bat, we know this is, this is a, being entered into, this discussion with deceitfulness on their part. And consider this, my friends. These brothers of Dinah, who are indignant and very angry, the text says, are having to listen to this proposal and cannot believe that what they are hearing. So they resort to a deceitful answer. And how they pulled off their answer in a convincing manner is uncertain, but they proceed in their immaturity to destroy peace as follows. In verses 14 through 16, this is how they go about destroying any semblance of, of peace. They said to them, we cannot do this, this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. So here, first of all, they put forth the importance of the outward sign of circumcision. That's what they put forth, the outward sign of circumcision. They make no mention of how that is integrally part of how they identify with God as being God's people, that it was part of God's covenant given to Abraham. That's not even mentioned. It's just the outward sign. Many scriptures speak to circumcision being a matter of the heart. Circumcision is to be a matter of the heart. You can see that, a matter of the heart by the Spirit in Romans 2.25 and Deuteronomy 30 and in Jeremiah 4. But that's completely absent here. It's not even present. This is an extremely dangerous understanding of any aspect of, of our identity with God. If we put more stock in a symbol or in an ordinance or in a tradition than we do in the heart that is submitted to the Lord... We get close to doing the same thing. And I would offer this as an area to be especially careful about for the youth that are here who are approaching the age of marriage, who are approaching getting married yourselves or even have that as a, as a possibility in your mind. I'm personally aware of situations where someone's religious affiliation Maybe you're aware of this too for some of you parents, or lack thereof was made into a hurdle for two lovers to get married. Does that make sense? So whether or not the other person identified with the others, re religious, whatever it might be, it could be Catholic or Mormon or, in our case, Christianity, you know, some kind of hurdle. Like, well, I, I can't, I, you know, 
I want to be with you, but unless you're like me religiously, that's not going to happen. Guess what happens? When that hurdle's placed after the lovers are already lovers. Well, when you put such a hurdle between young lovers, it makes it really easy for the other individual to figure out how to deal with that hurdle, to move forward with accepting what is being asked of them to obtain the prize that they really want. It's important to know that, therefore, youth who might be approaching marriage, it's important to know who you're involved with, what their relationship with the Lord is, way before you get involved with them in a romantic sense. It can quickly become obscured, and you have to be careful. And your parents can help you with that, and and others that you trust in your life to give you counsel. In the passage we have before us, what the sons of Jacob are doing, they're just making a show of religion. That's all they're doing, just making a show of it. You know, take on this sign, this thing that identifies us, you do the same thing, and then we'll be one people. Deceitfully. That's all they put. In First Peter chapter 2, as Christians, we have a, a different set of instructions to follow. In First Peter 2, verses 21 through 23, we have here written... For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In Genesis 34, we see a stark contrast to that. The immature and the deceitful answer is placed before Shechem with the destruction of peace clearly in mind. Do they really expect him to buy their request? That's unknown. It's hard to say. It's a tall order to have all the men of the region go through circumcision. How much power do Hamor and Shechem have? Unknown. So they push the deal. They push the deal. This is what you have to do. And there's a penalty for nonconformance. The penalty for nonconformance we read about in verse 17 says, But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. We'll take Dinah and we're out of here. Do what we have demanded, is what Jacob's sons say. However unlikely, just do it, or we will take Dinah and be gone. Do it our way, is what they say. Do it our way, or the young woman whom you have all your affections set upon, she'll be taken from you. Do it, or the deal is off. The immaturity of Jacob's sons is seen almost as a mere image of Shechem's immaturity and his father, which only aids in the destruction of peace. Their own deceitfulness is also put on display, Hamor and Shechem's. In verses 18 and 19, as we continue in our passage, 
It says, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So they hear this and they figure, you know what? We can make this happen. Let's go. Let's go see what we can get done. So they proceed. This is a trap that we can find ourselves in as well. So focused on what we think we want that we buy into the lies that surround it. That we don't even see the whole truth. Blindly rushing forward in impatience, thinking that the solution that has been presented will surely bring about the best possible result. Blind. We're blind to the immature impulses that we might have that might be leading us. And what do they have? They have the effect of destroying peace. This is not to be characteristic of our walk with the Lord. Paul urged those that he wrote to in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. However, this is not what we expect to happen with Hamor and Shechem. And in the next five verses, we read what they set about to do. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters only on this condition. Will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised? As they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of this, his city listened to Hamor and his, son, and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. This immature leadership of a, of a young man who is burning with lust for Dinah and a father who sees this as an opportunity to increase their property. That's what it says. He sees this as an opportunity like, well, we can, we can become grander. We can get their property out of this deal. That's what it says in verse 23. And it, this is compelling enough to give, convince all these people, all the men of the city, to go along with this, to go through with circumcision. This is a completely different motivation from when God called Abraham, completely different, to take his whole house into the covenant relationship with him and to, to seal that with circumcision. That act of circumcision was out of covenant identity with God in obedience to the word of God. Here, Shechem and Hamor convinced the people to go through with circumcision for a whole another set of reasons. And we're seeing a similar phenomenon happening around us, except accept some pain into your life. 
Give up some bodily autonomy. Just once do this thing and we'll all conform together and it's going to be better for all of us. But our identity is to be in Christ and our obedience is to him. Therefore, when we make our decisions, they have to be well-grounded in the truth and not made based on fear. In the Genesis passage, it's immature leaders that are about to bring the destruction of every male, every male in that city, every male that's surrounding that, that spot. They don't even know that their destruction is imminent, but that's what this is going to bring about by doing something in an effort to gain themselves possessions, to gain themselves women and prestige. Their destruction is lurking around the corner. And this gives the angry and indignant sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, license to charge ahead with their swords. That's what we read about in verses 25 through 29. On the third day, when they, that is the men of the city, were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. You see, these sons of Jacob, they feigned this symbol, this symbol of of religion, the symbol of circumcision. They basically scoffed the very word of God and just offered it up as, here, take this and you'll be like us without filling it out, without explaining it in any way. They did that to get what they wanted. They used what identified them as, as uh, you know, not only sons of Jacob, but us as people called out by God to get what they wanted. And what they wanted was vengeance. They end up destroying all the semblance of peace with their brash and immature action. The men are wiped out. In many ways, they've become the exact same. Instead of being set apart, they've basically just done what Shechem has done. They've taken what didn't belong to them. They've become the same in many ways. The immature destruction of peace or even the potential for peace highlights how the inaction of Jacob and the inaction of Hamor destroyed the natural protections. Their generation, this is the fathers, their generation would normally provide. Their inaction allows those protections that the elder generation should have brought to be destroyed. And this is our last brief point. Inaction destroys protections. It's only after the fact that Jacob laments what his sons do. Read what it says in the text in verse 30. 
Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. He chastises his sons. He never forgets, by the way. He never forgets what they've done or who they are. We're going to get there eventually, Lord willing, at the end of Genesis. But in Genesis 49, at the end of Jacob's life, when he has everyone gathered together and he's providing these pronouncements upon his, his sons, in Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7, he has a very specific word for Simeon and Levi. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. You see that this inaction that happens early on in this, in this chapter even, or, or be, before this, inaction that was occurring around them made these sons of Jacob fit to be tied. They were angry. They were youthful. And they had a zeal to see something done to protect the honor of their sister. And so they end this passage with a question that is very much on their mind. Even as their dad is chastising them in verse 30, they don't understand. And so they, they bring up this question in verse 31. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? The inaction, the lack of oversight, all they did was bring about destruction. Protections that should have been present in the home, that should have been available in the society, they all failed. This is the result of sin in the world. It crumbles that which we rely upon and makes that what used to be reliable, unreliable. Sin has that corrosive effect. In a passage such as what we have in front of us, like I said, it can be difficult to find much in the way of good. Even Jacob and his sons at the end seem very dissatisfied with the outcome. Jacob, because he's lost out on the ability to combine with the people of the land and to improve his lot. And he's become a stench in the region. He stinks. He knows it. He's like, my reputation is shot. And, he, and that brings up fear. He's got this fear of being destroyed and it just seems to be welling up within him and it becomes greatly elevated. And the, and the sons, they're incensed that their sister's defilement has just been brushed off. Like it's no big deal. Like it doesn't even matter. So they've engaged in savagery themselves, likely searing their consciences for the rest of their lives. The whole passage is, is like that horrific barn fire that we started with. No one is left standing at the end that has been unaffected by what has taken place. The carnage of what has taken place and the destruction are clearly present like the burned out barn. 
So what is a person to do in the face of such ugliness? Whether it's at the first spark in the middle or in the middle of the blaze or after the damage has been done. What is a person to do in such ugliness? You trust God. You trust God. You trust his word. You trust God. You trust his word. Because it is by his word, coupled with the testimony of the saints throughout the ages, that we're introduced to the one who has entered into the very deepest pit of despair. For all we have discussed and observed here is brought about by sin in this chapter. Therefore, the deepest pit of despair is the collection of all sin from everywhere for all time. And the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ, He is the one that did this for us. He entered into that space. And it says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake He made Him sin who knew no sin. Jesus is the one that submerged Himself into the fiery pit. And when you recognize you're in the middle of the carnage brought about by sin, the barn is on fire. The smoke is choking you and the fears are welling up within you. You don't know where to go or how to escape. There's one thing you can do. Call out for your rescuer. You call out to Jesus Christ who knows the pit. He went there to deal with your sin and he went there to deal with mine. He went to the cross and was crucified. His blood ran and his body absorbed the blows that I deserved, that you deserved, that we deserved as sinners. He took that. He alone was courageous in the face of danger, administering justice at the appropriate time. Do not fail. Do not fail to learn the hard lesson from our passage today, church. The path of destruction had all the warning signs that it was happening. The impulsiveness, the immoralities, the immature actions, and even inaction. Those were all the signs. They might be signs that you're starting to see here and there in your life. But even if you don't see the signs, if you miss the signs, there's still a path of destruction because littered along the way are all the remnants of what would have been there. The purity, the peace, they've all been abandoned. So what you have left to do? Call out to the rescuer. You call out to the redeemer of mankind. You call out to Jesus Christ. He's the only one worthy of your call. He is the only one who will respond. He was courageous in the face of danger. He was courageous and he can be trusted to administer justice at the appropriate time. For he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement of us all that brought peace and with his wounds we are healed. He is our rescuer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we carefully work through scriptures, scriptures that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us as a gift, we attempt not to shy away from the challenging ones. And 
Genesis 34 is, is no exception to that. Lord, we trust that by spending time looking at the hard parts of, of a sinful outcome, we're drawn to you. We recognize that there was no redeemer present in chapter 34. There was a redeemer overseeing. There was a sovereign God carrying everything along. But everything that was attempted resulted in death, resulted in defilement, resulted in people turning to something other than you. Lord, we want to be a people who come before you, bow before you and say, we can't do it like this. We can't be in a place of, of brokenness and, and devastation because of our sin. That we reach out and grab a hold of you and say, Lord, rescue me. Draw me near to you. Help me to walk in your ways. Lead me by your light. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for providing Jesus Christ as our Savior. The one who entered in to the deepest despair and came out victorious, our Savior. We have hope for all of eternity because of what Christ has done. No matter where we might find ourselves in despair, we just need to be willing to humble ourselves before you, shout out to our Lord and Savior and say, rescue me. And Lord, you provide what is necessary. You provide what is needed to sustain us in the darkness, to bring us out of that that burning carnage, and to bring us into the light. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for drawing us nearer to you every day. We pray that we would be faithful in responding to this word throughout the week, that you would use it in, in a manner that is most helpful to draw us nearer to you and to one another and to bring glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.